The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Time for our weekly environment spot with our resident, John Gibbons. And you know what I'm going to do today with you, John? I'm going to give you some of the complaints that listeners make about you and what you say and see if you can answer them. Sort of like the the common comments we get from them on a weekly basis, starting with this one, that the climate has changed before. It's always changing. We've had ice ages. We've had warm periods in the past. It's all just a natural cycle and all this doomsday stuff from you and your ilk about man-made climate change is hokum. Uh, good afternoon, Matt. Yeah, I mean, of course, like like all myths, there's there's an element of truth to what you've just said. And we know that the climate has always changed. And the reason we know it is that climate scientists have figured this out. Uh, things like ice ages, these are relatively recent discoveries that, that the Earth goes in and out of different cycles. And essentially, the best way to think about this is that Earth systems are very large, very complex, but they respond essentially to whatever is putting pressure on them. So, for example, uh, in a we have what's called a Milankovic cycle. Uh, this essentially is to do with the tilt of the Earth. And about every 12,000 years, that can uh, cause the Earth to go in and out of an ice age. Now, these are very, very slow and very subtle processes, Matt. So it might take, for example, a thousand years for that slight change in the Earth's tilt to to sufficiently alter conditions on Earth to bring us into or indeed back out of an ice age. Now, what's different really at the moment is that, uh, yes, there has been a substantial change. And the change now is that the main forcing on the Earth, far greater than the likes of Milankovitch cycles, is the human pressure uh, through carbon emissions. So we know, for example, that we're ejecting about 36 uh, billion tonnes of uh, the heat-trapping gas, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere every year. Now, basic physics tells you that that is going to cause the atmosphere to warm up. So that, if you like, is the forcing. Now, that forcing is far greater and happening at a much tighter timescale than, say, these type of uh, cycles that I've just described, which are what they call natural cycles. So generally speaking, of course, the Earth system responds. Uh, it, it goes in and out of, of, of cycles of cold and of, of warm. And I suppose at the moment, the period we're in is, is called an interglacial period. Now, under normal circumstances, over maybe the next few thousand years, we would gradually enter another glacial period. However, we're exiting the interglacial period and we're heading into basically a hothouse period. Now, we haven't had conditions like this on Earth, Matt, in millions, if not tens of millions of years. And people might say, well, that's fine. What's so wrong with, with something new? The problem is humans are finally adapted to the climate system that, that governs the Earth at the moment. For example, our agriculture systems, they depend on a stable climate, a predictable climate. And that's really what's on the line at the moment. So, so people who say, you know, the climate has changed before uh, and so on, they're absolutely right. And it's changing now and it's changing quickly. And the reason it's changing is because uh, wide scale, sustained human pressure is the current forcing. So in a sense, humans have become probably the largest force of nature on planet Earth. So in a sense, it would be very strange if the Earth wasn't responding to the massive changes that human pressures have brought to bear on the system over the last, say, uh, 200 years, and particularly, Matt, over the last 50 years. Yeah, but you talk about climate scientists as if there's consensus between them as to what's going on. But surely they're divided. And given that they're divided and that there's, you know, you have to give equal weighting to each point of view, surely there's no actual need to take any action, is there? 
Yeah, that, that again is another very uh, common myth. This one, by the way, didn't really happen by accident. This particular myth has been promoted heavily for the last 40 to 50 years, largely by the fossil fuel industry. They have uh, gotten sort of rogue scientists, if you like, onto their payrolls to put out the message that nobody really knows what's going on about climate. Now, the sad reality is that those organizations, they understood literally four or five decades ago exactly what was going on, but they realized that if the public came to understand just what the situation was, then people would demand uh, essentially that we stop burning fossil fuels. So the, the phrase, Matt, that they use is doubt is our product. So most ordinary folks don't really understand how science works. That's quite normal. Of course we don't. We leave it to the experts. Now, it's therefore very easy to befuddle people. Now, I'll give you an example. There was a, there was a report, and I use the word report, I'll put it in inverted commas, issued by a group based in Holland uh, with some very dubious funding. And they described themselves as a 1,100 scientists and other professionals saying, you know, climate change is rubbish. This is out in the last couple of months. Now, when you look into that group, which, by the way, has a, about a dozen Irish members, what you find are mostly retired engineers and other people, basically not a, not a solitary uh, reputable practicing climate scientist among the entire 1100. So we have to be very careful when we listen to quote experts. And you get this thing where people essentially, an expert in one field, that's just for argument's sake, uh, an educationalist suddenly pops up on the radio talking about climate science. So we need to be super careful when we're listening to experts that they're actually telling us about something that is that they're an expert in. Because you may be a professor <laughs> of, of one subject, but that does not make you an expert in another. And what we do know about is that the, 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 the scientific consensus, if you like, in relation to climate change being man-made, happening now, and dangerous. That consensus has been looked at very carefully in, 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 the, in the research. And what we know is that of practicing scientists, over 99% accept those three statements. Okay, over John, 99%. But listeners want to know, what are your qualifications? You're not a climate scientist, are you? No, absolutely not. I'm a commentator, Matt, uh, an, an environmental journalist, I guess, in the same way that, you know, you, you present a radio program and you speak to many experts in the course of your of your day. And uh, your job, if you like, as a generalist is to is to interrogate various people who come and, and talk to you. And that's what I do as an environmental journalist. Uh, my job, if you like, as a generalist is to scour the science, find out what's being said, uh, read the read as many papers as I can manage, speak with experts. And the important thing thing here, Matt, is this isn't about what John Gibbons has to say. It really isn't. Uh, I'm, I'm purely a vehicle in this, uh, carrying the information uh, as, I, as I find it, as, as directly and as honestly as I can back to the public to basically say, guys, here's what's going on. Uh, and you notice, for example, you know, many climate scientists are not necessarily particularly either good at or interested in public communication. I guess they get on with the job of science. Therefore, we need, if you like, a layer between scientists and the public. And they would be, I suppose, science communicators, science journalists who, and they work for the BBC, you know, George Lee, for example, again, is an economist who works as the as the environment correspondent for RTE. So there's nothing at all unusual about a journalist coming on okay. to speak about a, a subject like this. Okay. You mentioned carbon dioxide earlier, but we also have listeners saying to us that carbon dioxide is plant food. So a bit more in the atmosphere, rather than being bad for us, is actually good for us. Yeah, and absolutely, Matt. And once again, uh, as with all myths and all, and all, uh, if you like, misleading statements, there's always a nugget of truth in them. And this, of course, is true. Uh, we know full well that uh, CO2 is absorbed by plants and in small doses. So, for example, in a gardener's greenhouse, the, the enhanced carbon dioxide effect of that gives, gives the, the plants a little boost, right? However, um, that is completely offset by, by other, if you like, limits, things of 
potash, potash or potassium nitrates and so on. Other limits will basically mean that the, the carbon benefit of, of, of additional CO2, you know, in terms of making plants grow, that sort of levels off very quickly and you don't get much of a bounce beyond that. But the problem really with CO2 is that while it's a trace gas, we're looking at about 420 parts per million, it is an incredibly powerful uh, heating gas. It's the only part of our atmosphere that is that is basically absorbs and holds heat. And that's why the level of carbon dioxide is so important. Now, we know that uh, in the last 800,000 years, carbon dioxide levels have never been at the level that they are today. So we, we've increased global CO2 levels, Matt, by about 50% over pre-industrial. So essentially, the basic fundamental chemistry of planet Earth has been changed by the dumping of okay. billions and indeed trillions of tons of, of carbon into the atmosphere. And that's why, while, you, while a little carbon dioxide is a good thing, and of course we need it for life on Earth, uh, too much is extremely dangerous. But John, what our listeners also say to us is that even if we accept that global warming is real and that it's dangerous, in Ireland we don't have too much to worry about as we're a cool maritime country quite far north. And anyway, whatever we might do is irrelevant. What really matters is what happens in China, India, the United States, that we're too small to make a difference globally. And really, we're only going to be hurting ourselves if we try to bother trying. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of really interesting points to try and unpick there. First of all, uh, you're absolutely right. As a maritime climate, we have a certain buffer against extreme weather. So, for example, our neighbouring island, uh, Britain, uh, broke 40 degrees centigrade for the first time in recorded history a couple of months ago. Ireland just narrowly missed that particular heat wave because of our maritime condition. But in a couple of years' time, we may find that we're not so lucky. So that's number one. These these killer heat waves, uh, we have no magical recipe, Matt, that makes us uh, avoid them. We've been lucky so far. The second thing, of course, about a maritime uh, position is we have uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of kilometres of coastline. Much of that coastline is vulnerable to sea level rise and to coastal inundation. So, for example, you take the, the low-lying areas, uh, Dublin, Waterford, Cork, Galway, all of these are facing uh, severe problems with sea level rise, say, of one metre, 1.5, two metres. We're basically, Matt, going to lose much of our coastal infrastructure later this century. So that's going to be an enormous problem here in Ireland, a huge problem. Uh, also, of course, what we're seeing, climate change is fueling stronger and more dangerous storms, more extreme flooding events. And, and specifically within Ireland, what we're seeing is an increase in drought events in summer. So, for example, we had a severe drought that really hit our agriculture in, in 2018. And this summer, in fact, we had another drought condition. But what we're seeing, Matt, on the one hand is our summers are drying out in Ireland, but our winters are getting wetter. Okay, but so then get, means, to the, yeah. get to the point though that listeners bring up that it doesn't matter a damn what we do in Ireland because we're like 0.02% of the global problem. Whatever we might do and inhibit our own lifestyles to do so is going to be meaningless given what they're up to in the likes of China and India. Yeah, I, I understand again where that's coming from. And, and once again, there, there's an element of, of understanding where people are coming from with that. A couple of things to say. Ireland punches way above our weight in, in internationally, diplomatically. For example, we currently have a seat on the UN Security Council. We are an influential, we're a small country, but we're also an influential country, Matt. We're part, for example, we're an equal partner of the European Union, which is one of the largest uh, and most powerful economic and political organizations uh, on earth. So our voice at EU level can help to drive policies that genuinely change, change the world. And the second thing I would say about that is that our current per capita um, pollution, our 
emissions are the second highest in the EU. Now, if you took a typical Irish person's uh, emissions, which are about 12 to 13 tonnes a year, that is the equivalent amount of 88 Ethiopians. So if you like Ireland, even though there's only 5 million of us here, we're producing the, the pollution equivalent of maybe three to 400 million people living in sub-Saharan Africa. So you might say we're small, but our influence both for good and for ill can't be overstated. Okay. And, and I think, and people will also say, Matt, just to finish the point, that in India, uh, for example, they're much poorer than we are. And they say, but hang on, we're not going to change. Why don't people in rich countries like Ireland stop flying around, stop driving SUVs? They should change, then we will change. So it's a moral position as well. John, give us one final one. And there are listeners suggesting, look, it's too late to stop global warming. So why even bother trying? Yeah, that is a good point, Matt. And this is sort of like the, the flip side of the denial position. The denial position says there isn't really a problem or the scientists have exaggerated or these environmental journalists are, are hysterical. That, that's one side of the argument. The other side is, oh, it is all too late. We're doomed anyway. Why bother? Now, I, I really reject that position. I'll tell you why. Because basically people peddling that position, the first question you've got to ask them is, well, what have you done, right? Between the time that you first found out that there was a problem and the time that you gave up, what did you do in the meanwhile? Because to be honest, Matt, this situation we do not have the luxury of fatalism. In a situation like this, we can't just throw in the towel because already, especially in the developing world, uh, the people are suffering terribly as a result. Is they're dying, crops are failing, uh, famines are spreading, uh, political instability is spreading, and this is coming towards our door. We in Ireland, we, we live in a, in a rich, relatively secure part of the world, but that will not last, that will not withstand uh, climate collapse. Therefore, the time for us to be giving up is when it's too late. At the moment, it's still everything to play for. And I will say this as well. Every fraction of a degree of warming that can be avoided will save misery, hardship, loss and disaster for tens of millions of people. The difference between 1.4, for example, and 1.5 or 1.6 and 1.7, these are massive differences, Matt. And we have everything to play for and everything to fight for. Now, if, of course, we take the position, the fatalistic view, the cynical view that says it's all too late, well, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That means that that's exactly what will happen. And then we can lie back and say, well, gosh, maybe we should have, when there was still a chance, maybe we should have taken action. And I guess folks like me, what we're arguing for is there's still opportunities to, to, to change this, to turn it around. Now, we're still going to have a hard landing map no matter what happens. But what we want to avoid, while we will have a hard landing, what we want to avoid is crashing into the mountain. So, okay. so that's what's in it for me. Thank you very much, John Gibbons, for our weekly environment spot. We'll have you back again next Thursday. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.